This is The Verse, a weekly dive into the cinematic universes and beyond. We'll dissect the latest episodes, films, and news all fans from veterans to news are dying to know more about. Now, here's our team of pop culture superheroes we call The Verse Squad. Welcome to The Verse. Hey, everyone. Hello, how are you doing? Very good indeed. So to ease us into our podcast questions, do you have a favorite superhero now or then or ever? (laughs) That's a really tough question. I mean, you've got to love that there's a sort of, I don't know, that is a really tough one. (laughs) The thing thing I love about, um, you know, in a way, Captain America and Iron Man are two sides. I mean, you know, Civil War, I guess, is a classic example of them being two sides of the same coin what you've got to admire about captain america while he's straight laced and not necessarily he's not especially in his early iterations he's not exactly full of banter but i mean you know if you were if you were stuck and needed rescuing if there's one guy you could rely on to like he'll never knowingly not do the right thing right he's responsible he's always thinking of the team he's altruistic he's an embodiment of all the ideas that like none none of us could actually aspire to uh but he's not as witty and it's not as funny and tony tony stark's just hilarious you know i just love lines like you know in iron man 2 when all the politicians are getting a bit arsy because it's like, well, wait a minute, he's got this suit that basically we ought to have as the, uh, you know, in the military. So maybe I don't know how it works. In the UK, the Ministry of Defence actually have a little pocket of time when they can seize privately uh, constructed because it's seen as like for national security. So they're kind of piling in on Iron Man to go, well, look, you know, this is a serious weapon and I think it needs to be under the jurisdiction of, you know, the United States government and not some playboy. And he just turns around and goes, look, I privatise world peace, okay? So thank me for it. Or, you know, I, I can't, yeah, yeah, you, I privatise world peace. You're welcome. And, like he, When he's in that sort of mode, it's kind of difficult to argue with him. But then he makes mistakes. He's really cocky. He screwed up really badly in the second Avengers film. Yeah, he made because, Ultron. Yeah, he can't so I think, I think you're going to like talking to Norm here because he's yeah. our resident Captain America worship. Uh, Right. Uh, Stan, oh, oh, I guess. Oh, yes, Stan. I'm not a worshiper, but I, I do I do love him very much. Yeah, it's archetypal. He's the overreacher. It's the same story as Frankenstein. He's always going to make the mistake of like, oh, screw the rules. We can push boundaries no one's ever done before. We'll be fine. I'll take care of it. It's going to be great. And then it goes horribly wrong. Meanwhile, Captain America would be like, well, hold on a minute. Like, So you've decided that, you know, off your own bat, you've got all the 
wisdom in the world. This is this is going to, you know, without consulting anyone. So it'd be really difficult to say who my favourite uh, superhero is because it would be maybe a triangulated point, slap bang between the cocky uh, sort of entrepreneurial outrageousness of Tony Stark versus the really straight-laced ethical uh, certitude of Captain America. It's, so just depending on your question. mood, you'll have, have a different answer. superhero, a different favorite superhero. Yeah. Like every day of the week, just rotate. I think, I th- yeah, it depends what mood you're in because, you know, and, you know, having said that, even though it's not in the Marvel it, uh, um, universe, I, I really like, and it's probably most inspired by the original Richard Donner Superman there's something about the mo the original Superman that Richard Donner did is actually dripping with like mythological content in a way that I think because of the sheer success of the Marvel universe and also what Chris Nolan successfully did with Batman and the DC universe everything it's been slightly forgotten that before the slightly dodgy period of Batman nipple suit era there was actually <laughs> There was actually a late 70s manifestation of superhero that was incredible. If you look at the, you know, the whole, that opening where they had the balls to get Marlon Brando to do the whole, the Moses story. Yes. Our world is dying and we must send out. uh, I can't remember his name when it's not Superman, you know, his name. Oh, well. Thank you. No problem. that that is such a biblical and mythic moment and the filmmaking is astonishing i mean when you know the scene when his father after his um adopted father has died and he's of sufficient age um he's sort of got it you know it's the greek greek uh greek play moment where the protagonist has to go forth to his destiny and and the, the mother is in the kansas field of sweeping corn and everything that is an unbelievable scene yeah no, that, that that was a that actually is a great movie in general. I mean, they got Marlon yeah. Brando who's a heavy hitter and he gives that oh. long winded speech and he ends it with, you know, the whole uh be the light to guide their way. It's yeah, it's Shakespearean. It's moving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's moving. It's oh, I'm nearly in tears with that. That scene with the it because it, it looks like it's such an amazing celebration of uh, for all the che- you know for all the accusations of cheesiness that get hurled at anything that's like American patriotic you know sure um, so that's why a lot of people always like to add a little bit of tongue in cheek or a bit of sarcasm or whatever that scene where um, Superman has to leave his mum is dead straight it's totally earnest there's no irony it's not trying to be cool and the sheer beauty of the cinematography it's like an amazing depiction of rural America right well. You anyway, do. I don't great... know how we got off. We've somehow drifted <laughs> well, off Marvel. But you, you did a great it's job. One of my favorite in... superheroes. You did a great job in uh, Captain America: The Winter Soldier when Cap gives his speech to all of Shield, letting them know that oh, in the building. Yeah, you do you a know. great job in that of not overplaying what Steve's doing, but you you really did a great job of playing that honest. emotion. Yes. Yeah. It's, I think, well, that if, if anything, then it's a combination. I was talking earlier about, you know, uh, because I studied classical music, I've got a whole um, experience of, um, uh, you know, grand symphonic and orchestral music that isn't cheesy and that isn't trying to be ironic in Strauss and Wagner. You know, those guys were met. I'm clearly, I'm not, those are the greatest composers that ever lived. But the point being that I've got, you know, somewhere in the in the back of my mind, I've got these references for how to play it, how to play it straight. And, and I would say it's probably, you know, the John Williams score for Superman 
uh, is beautiful. So somewhere along those lines, when I do get those scenes where it's time to suit up, you know, yeah. uh, which if you handle those scenes wrong, they they can come across a bit, you know, it's not just me, it's the, the filmmaking, the cinematography, the acting. If everyone gets that right, then it is actually uplifting and moving. If you get it wrong, it's it's cheesy and you feel manipulated and it's like a stock. It's like opening a Pepsi can of like right. cheesy patriotism. <laughs> so um, d- during that scene, uh, when you were when you were composing for that, did you find yourself maybe going a little too far? And you're like, wait a minute, let me on playback. Yeah, maybe I should pull this back a little bit more. Pull back maybe, the Strauss a little, a little bit too far. I don't, I'm trying to think with that scene. I don't think so. Um, well, firstly, you know, I'm British, so, you know, if anything, <laughs> I probably slightly... <laughs> no, I think, you know why, to be honest, that scene comes quite late in the mm-hmm. movie. And I think by then I got into the swing of the tonality of the film. And, you know, because Winter Soldier was this really weird combination, really industrial, gnarly stuff for the Winter Soldier. Right. But then this quite rich, uh, uh, straight, quite straight up, classical um sort of aspirational melodic patriotic music and i think i'd found my feet by then so by the time i got to that scene i was like oh yes can't wait to do that scene because it's sort of like it's the ethical money it's the money moment in terms of the ethical content and uh and also just in the nature of that scene it because he was giving a speech to operatives in an it, it wasn't like he wasn't holding a flag with the sun behind him. But, you know, if it, you, you've got to be a little bit. Had it been a more Gettysburg Address type environment, you know, you got to tread a bit more carefully. But the funny thing was, I think it was allowed to have a committed, a really committed element to it because actually it was in a fairly stressful environment where he's having to explain to all the Shield employees, you know, what's going on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's like a hat on a hat. If he was already holding an American flag, waving in the wind, uh, like giving out medals to, to, to people, then it's like, well, hold on, you know, how much how much paint do we need if we've already got something that patriotic happening? So you brought up the the uh, industrial sounds that accompany the Winter Soldier. And I noticed you've, you've brought it back for Falcon in the Winter Soldier. And it pops in in some, some places I w- wasn't going to expect. Like I expected it when he was in the uh, the hotel uh, and he was back remembering flashback. his days. Yeah, the flashback scene. But you also pull it in in some other places, and it's like kind of in the background. Is that letting? Is that more of like his PTSD of I can't forget that I was this guy, or yeah. is that? Does well, he that, hear it? Like, does he actually hear it? Do you think? No, do you, yeah, no that do you, would be a bit fourth wall. If he if he suddenly went, wait a minute, is that my uh, Winter Soldier scream that Jackman has, is torturing me with? <laughs> that that would be a bit like. Uh, you, you knew they'd jump the shark. I think Roger Moore uh, stepped off some uh, uh, boat. <laughs> was it octopusy? And and yes. some yes. Uh, some um, Indian chaps going do 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 do, and then Roger Moore goes, "Ah, oh, that must be for me." Like, uh oh, what? So James Bond now recognizes his own thing. No, but you make a good point. Really, what it is in the new show, in, in obviously in Captain America: Winter Soldier, he is literally, you know, um, it's like the RoboCop scenario, the tortured souls stuck in sure. the in the programming. Whereas now we're in it, now. There's a new theme like the civilian. Bucky theme, which is a lot more humane. It's more like on the piano and guitar and everything. But there's this underlying tension because we get not only he has little moments that aren't flashbacks, like when Zemo is messing around, going, "Oh, look, here's this book of yours." With and he's you get like little moments where he just suddenly 
you know, like the tiger's still there. But then you also get actual flashbacks where he really is the Winter Soldier. Right. Then you get the showdown in, in Majapur when he kind of goes into Winter Which Soldier. Which also sounds incredible, by the way. Yes. That's such a right. Cool so all of that, all of that stuff comes back in. So with Bucky, it's not plain sailing. It's not just all this new Bucky civilian theme. Uh, but nor is it, you know, he's not Winter Soldier. So it's the sort of um, tension and flux between him, you know, trying to get his head together and, and being <laughs> passive aggressive with his shrink. <laughs> uh, and then these little moments where he's either provoked by Zemo or it's an actual flashback where you see something when he was the Winter Soldier. So both elements are in the mix. So when you go to uh, create a theme for a character like Buddy, uh, Bucky, not Buddy, uh, what like what is your process for like research? Do you like gr- read in depth into the character? Do you dive into the comics? Or how do you, do do you give, talk like, to art? the actors? Yeah, because you clearly know your superheroes. So, I mean, how yeah. do you um, yeah do research for that? Actually, I got a bit, uh, I geek out on sort of what I would call scientific DNA musicology. So what actually happened with the, because there was already a Winter Soldier thing. If you listen really carefully to the Winter Soldier track on, on the Captain America Winter Soldier soundtrack, uh the whole first half of that Winter Soldier thing is all deep drones, gnarly electronic sounds, and there's not much melodic for a while. Then this thing comes in, and then this kind of Russian horn comes in. But if you keep listening right at the end, there's this, as buried in all the carnage and the screaming and the metal banging, there's this sort of rising string line, you know, in the last sort of 45 seconds. And actually, I sort of took the shape of that string line because I'm a great believer in don't just do things from scratch. I took that string line and it was in a very peculiar scale that makes it very stressy in called an octatonic scale in the original Winter Soldier, which is inherently a disturbing kind of tonality. So I sort of took a melodic shape out of it and then sort of like, like a scientist fiddle around with it, took it out of the nasty scale into a diatonic scale, which is a more humane scale and kept some of that melodic shape. And that got turned into civilian Bucky. So if it was that dude in Jurassic Park, you know, who makes, it would be like stick a syringe in the string line of Winter Soldier, pull it out, put it in a Petri dish, get some programming going where you remove the kind of, um, the uh, the tritone scale is made and fiddle around with that DNA till something pops out. You go, oh look, there's a civilian Bucky. That look that, that sounds a bit more sympathetic. So I mean, it's real geeky stuff, but it wasn't from scratch. It actually had its DNA um, born out of a very buried string melody that came right at the end of the Winter Soldier suite on you, the CD. Yeah, you, thank you. You make mention that it, the melody really kicks in more towards the end of it, but uh, I do remember a scene that uh, I'm actually curious is if they gave it to you with Gary Sinise's uh, voiceover where uh, Steve is undercover at the Smithsonian visiting the Captain America. Um, oh, you mean in, in the movie Winter Soldier? Yes. There, there's, a great, uh, there's a great melody that plays underneath that. Isn't that and, a Sylvester thing? No, that was no. no. That we put the only. Okay, it's been a minute. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. The only room we could find because I uh, Sylvester's that hero of mine, but the tone of Winter Soldier is so different. The only bit of real estate we could find for the original uh, Sylvester DNA was right at the very beginning. The Smithsonian, no, well, that was just an op- The Smithsonian cue was more in the spirit of like a straight up Aaron Copeland. I, if we're talking about the same scene, it's it's it, where he's going through the Smithsonian, looking at the Captain America stuff, and like, da, da, dee, dee. yeah, yes, it's like yes. it's, it's like it a sounds so straight. much like Copeland. 
Right. It, it's like a, it's the sort of thing you would hear if you went to one of those presentational. It's a melody right. that's so dripping with patriotism. It doesn't have tension in the melody, you know, right. unlike the, the cap theme that's used in the movie. So, But you yeah. have that moment with where, where the boy notices that it's Captain yeah. America and you, you play that off really well. And then you it, also it goes into the woodwinds. Yes. And then you also play into uh, <laughs> the, the Bucky when they mention about Bucky being the only member that, that perished. Yeah. Play that really well so but there there was melody there that i actually thought was really great and well the and that's like a real classic sort of bucky of the 50s i didn't want to take that uh, civilian bucky as we see in falcon and winter soldier is a even though he's 100 and whatever it is 106 he's like a modern guy trying to deal with his psychological shit Whereas I, I had a, just because there were a few moments in Captain America Winter Soldier where I was able to do, you know, the reassuring 50s Bucky, or was it for late 40s, which I don't think, I, I didn't want to take that DNA and use that because it's a slightly different, he's struggling, you know what I mean? Yeah. Bucky's really struggling. So I, I, I thought it was intellectually more honest to take something that was part of the Winter Soldier and then just sort of twist it into civilian uh, harmony, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah. But, you know, all of this stuff, it's great to play with it all. You know, it's the same with um, when John Walker was revealed at the end of um, episode one, the cap tune that appears in Winter Soldier that goes, there's like a version of that in the presentation of John Walker. It's just the harmonies all got redone. So you're thinking, huh. Why doesn't that sound quite as heroic as, you know, there's something about it that's not feeling quite Steve Rogers. It's like, well, it's weird because it, you know, it quacks, it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, but it's not quite swimming like a duck because I kept the melody, but I changed all the harmony. Now, now going forward, the, the question is, is we're starting to see John Walker crack a little bit in these last two episodes. Oh, yeah. Are, are we going to hear a little bit of a change in his? You oh, can't... yeah. But I, I can't say anything about episodes four, five, and six. Otherwise, five. Yeah, no, Sniper will, will get me from the roof. But, but, but uh... you are evolving it. You are you oh, are evolving the... Trust me, uh, I, would, I would be a pretty hopeless composer if the character develops and I go, oh, did he? And then carry on just doing the same thing. <laughs> Actually, uh, to kind of... They wouldn't, they wouldn't let me get away with that. <laughs> So to follow on, and by the way, it makes so much sense that you that you mentioned Wagner. I don't know if I mentioned that before, um, but for as when we're talking about character themes, um, Zemo's theme, which is very, I think, very distinctive and returns from Civil War. I think uh, I'm wondering about how did you think about that because Zemo is like a very specific, distinct personality. Oh, I can hang on. Let me see if I if I can move to the piano, please. I'll totally, uh, you know, this is getting very geeky indeed. And I love that he's By the way, we, do, I love do, do not be afraid of being geeky. Too. By the way, it won't, um, the Zemo theme sounds great on strings. It's not going to sound as, as good on the piano, but I can actually show you some sort of mechanics on the piano. The Z, well, the thing about Zemo in the, um, uh, as he appeared in Civil War, is he's very manipulative. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, I picked an odd, like, normal, if you'd pick a dead straight, uh, scale it goes which has no tension in it you know that would be like you know not very scary then, then you could pick a minor scale which is slightly moodier right or you could pick this other crazy scale that goes <laughs> 
way more. Yeah, play with the modes. Right, it's got, it's got a lot more tension in it. So here was the intellectual conceit. The Zemo theme, he's always dividing people, right? His mission is he's constantly scanning the situation to see how he can um, put a wedge between, I mean, you know, the, the, the Accords were already splitting the, the team right. in Civil War, but, you know, everything he does is to do with, with splitting, right? So I took a note and then, and then it, it goes, right, half of the tune goes one way and the half goes uh, in the opposite direction. So it goes. So it's actually like, um, uh, it's symmetrical. So for, for each note, that one goes up, that one goes down. And then it goes. So it's like a little spider web thing where as one side pushes out, the other splitting. So it's actually fragmenting. Um, and it's in that odd scale. Now that wouldn't, that would sound pretty unimpressive. If you did it in a normal scale, it would be more like. That sounds really happy. That's hopeless. You know, yeah. that would be like. Yeah. Whereas Zemo feels like. these uh, strange um you know tuned percussion sounds that went along with it but it it just it it just meant that there was the intellectual conceit of whatever the first note is is like a sort of split point and then it, it just cracks either side of the note and i was doing a lot of that in civil and a lot of civil the ostinatos would often go like um uh i'm trying to remember now so long ago <laughs> All these also, and what's happening is the same principle. You have a note, and then and then the notes are appearing just either side of it, which is my incredibly pretentious description of like <laughs> the, the break in civil war. You know, like two teams. You know, if that was the desired unity, you know, the team's getting split. Uh, and by the way, while I'm on the piano, I might as well try and remember that, uh, demonstrate that Falcon thing in in yes. um, yeah. in, in Captain America. Um, Winter Soldier, there was, you know, the main thing, the cap theme was. Um... Sorry. Etc. And Falcon, I didn't have that much time for him, right? Every, every now and then he'd do something heroic and I just had time to go. And just as he might have needed another phrase, it was too late that, you know, the action was moved on. <laughs> and it was back to like. You know, cat would show up or whatever, and then so when it came to this show, I was like, "Ooh, I've got to go back to that," um, because I felt like that was the beginning of something, and so that was the first phrase that, which you hear several times in Captain America: Winter Soldier. So after this phrase, I was like, "Well, why does he keep going?" I got to finish the tune, you know, which is the- and we are so happy about it. Right. Was, now, was that rewarding to to be able to finally finish that? Oh, you're like, oh, yeah. oh, I had this in my head, but 
Well, because I'd be humming when I was doing Winter Soldier, I was like, you know, I reckon there's something to that. And I thought, well, look, you know, I'm so busy doing the score. There's no point in fleshing out that thing. So I'm never, I'm never going to, I'm never going to be able to get it in. You know, it's, right. it's not Captain America, the Winter Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it's Waiting nice. for that film though. Yeah, right. And then, you know, it was nice to do a version where it was going like, do the whole, you know, give him a bit of, um, yeah, at the same time. Uh, but that, yeah, that's a really good example of something you can do um, by picking up some DNA and then, you know, uh, because of the nature of the show and because a character who didn't have so much real estate to develop now does, you know, you can take something and, um, if the fragment's good enough, you know, you can sort of mess around with it and find out that there's actually, a, you know, a whole theme hidden in there. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Did so, you... F- oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, no, Bridget. No, go ahead, no so when you, you uh, were handed this new project, The Falcon and the, and the Winter Soldier, did you find yourself going back and, like, revisiting, like, some of the older films and just seeing, like, where the characters have been and have gone through in order to develop well, this I'm pretty sort good. of new I, theme I, for all of them? I think the sad truth is I have actually seen every single Marvel thing since the ones I've, you know, it's not like I only watch, in fact, the reverse is true. I hardly ever watch things that I've done because it's like a busman's holiday, if you know that expression, <laughs> meaning meaning it's like work when I watch things I've done. I love watching things that I've had absolutely nothing to do with because then you don't have to remember all the millions of hours of work and all the little pernickety criticisms you can think of. Um, but I'll tell you what I did do because, you know, what you know I just finished Cherry and worked on so many different kinds. I mean, Cherry's wildly different to a superhero movie. I kind of sat down and went, okay, let's remember all these themes. I went through the Winter Soldier score and kind of did a little audio packet for myself, all color-coded of like, okay, (laughs) so that's this, the Cap theme, we got the Zemo theme and, you know, uh, put all the, and you know, different versions that use different harmonies. And just to remind myself of all the permutations of different motifs and whatnot. And that's when I stumbled. I'd almost forgotten that when in Winter Soldier, when it went dan dan dan, I was like, "Oh, that's right." That was- <laughs> there it is. Falcon came uh, sweeping in. So yeah, we got we got to work. We just keep going with that one. Um, so yeah, I gave myself a sort of refresher course on the stuff I've done because I don't know if you look at IMDb, I've done a lot of movies since even since Civil War. And when you do different, you know, you really commit to a different universe. Like the world of Cherry is such a different Sonic world. And, you know, I can't, I can't even, you know, a Pikachu and, you know, the well, you've, you, you've worked with a lot of the MCU characters, though. Obviously, Cherry, the Russo brothers, Tom Holland, uh, yeah, yeah. Kong, Skull Island. That was riddled with lots of MCU heroes, Brie Larson, Tom Hiddleston. So they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, they're well, everywhere. That's true. But the one thing, if you watch uh, Cherry, the one thing you are not thinking when you look at Tom Holland is that, oh, look, Spider-Man. As he's, no, like, definitely not. Definitely not. Munching OxyContin and robbing banks. And uh... <laughs> You also do some video game scores. Uh, one of my uh, favorite games in the last couple of years has been Uncharted. And they're doing a movie. Have you been tagged to, uh, to look into that at all? Uh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> the, uh, hey, that was, uh, yeah, that was an interesting experience. I mean, I love doing, the, the main difference with uh, video games is that, that the, you get a bit more time, which is nice. The whole process is a bit more modular because the games take so long to make. And it, you get these interesting creative restrictions because 
you know, apart from the cinematics where you really can score it like a movie, of course, it depends on gameplay. So you can't just suddenly have key changes and changes of tempo. Right. You've got to write music where, you know, the AI can like cleverly fade stems in and out depending on level of stress. And then <laughs> you have to do, you know, action rhythms where there's like a layer that's double speed. So it can all work a bit like a jigsaw, which at first you think, oh, that's a bit of a restriction. You can't do exactly what you want, but you kind of get into it. It's a different, it's a completely different um skill set and and working with that technology of how the engine of the computer itself starts doing like live mixing of the stems depending on you know the environment that the game is in it's just a different it's a completely different thing to a totally fixed series of images where you can just do whatever you want and score it which you also get in video games because you get the big cinematics that don't change (laughs) um but uh yeah i think i've got a uh, i mean i i loved working on that um, video game but the there's I don't know there's something about if you're lucky enough to work with people as directors who've got a really um, interesting angle and a creative vision there's something nice about like I don't want to go in there and go left or right or kill anyone I just want to watch it <laughs> <laughs> um, but then it's horses for courses you know it's just completely different thing you know there's no way cherry would be a video game cherry is a sit down and watch experience and a challenging one at that you know yeah. and video Video games are awesome. They're just a totally different. And well, but you know, by the time all this VR stuff really kicks off, there'll be, you know, ev- even more. There'll be no hope for human outdoor <laughs> human outdoor activity. You'll be like, well, why would I go outdoors? You know, apart from we the fact, everything we'll, we need, right? Right. We'll just lose our arms and legs. You know, like, like we're not careful. And Norm, I don't want to leave this thread if you're not finished with it, but um, uh, it's good. Okay, but uh, you mentioned earlier that you know you have been you have actually ended up seeing all of the Marvel films. And I was wondering, do you have a, a favorite score that you haven't written? I mean, what Alan was up to on those last two was, was fantastic. And yeah. I mean, part of, part of that is the climax of the whole thing, but just because the movies are climaxing, you, you, you'd still, as a composer, you, you got to raise your game to get there, which I mean, you know, I'd never doubt that with Alan, the man's a genius. I mean, I thought Alan's a genius since Predator, for God's sake, and that's right, yeah, no, no. 1980, whatever, that John McTiernan movie. It's mid-80s, isn't it? Something like that. 80, I think it's 85. Yeah, genius. Um, now, with with that being said, there's... Trying the, to think uh, of other... Yeah, go on, sorry. The, the, there's that, that scene where uh, everyone comes out from being blipped when Doctor oh. Strange is... Uh, that scene gave me chills. Did, did it give you chills? And oh, you're yeah. like, wow, Alan did so great with that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know what? He'd nailed it so much that I had literally, because obviously being a composer, it's awful. You're tracking music all the time and following the harmony. He, he, I think everyone did such a good job on that movie that I literally reverted to being an audience member and actually managed to watch it like a normal human being, <laughs> which is, which is, you know, really rare because normally I'm listening out um, for the music and following the orchestration, the harmony. And so, I mean, I'd probably have to hand it to Alan just because he's, he's a legend and he's like a hero of mine. I'm, I'm sure there are other great ones. It's just, I'm not, uh, but yeah, why not? Let's give it to Alan. Cause he's, he's a bit of a God. Yeah. <laughs> is there, is there a score that you would like to write? Um, yes, if I don't know if anyone, it may, it's too late to make it because it's already happened. Um, it's really difficult to do a space movie that's dripping with sophistication and class and alien. 
Alien is just one of the greatest movies ever made because it weirdly combines. Uh, it's really weird because the the logistics of space are legit in Alien. Not maybe not quite as literal as Two Thousand One Space Odyssey, where they literally got like physicists involved. <laughs> but given that it's sci-fi, it's seriously legit, right? It's not like, oh, look, we're all in costumes. It's sci-fi. They're all like blue-collar dudes doing a job who get woken up like, ah, shit, we got to check out this stupid, you know, signal we've received because it's actually in the contract and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Meaning uh, just the credibility of that world is incredible. And what's incredible about it is it combines the sheer cost. The problem is we've had that plot now of everyone getting picked off one by one. But we hadn't had that in 19... So when was Alien Age? 79 or so? Well, no, earlier. Was it 70... Was it before Star Wars? I think it was right around the same time. Uh, My memory's fuzzy on on that one. Because Aliens was 83. Oh, no, it's way, but it's definitely 70s. Uh, uh, The original Aliens, definitely 70s. 79. 79, okay. So it's about two two years after Star Wars. It combines, like, the infinity of space with the claustrophobia of what's going down. It's, like, it's got a horror element, but it's it's pre when horror became schlocky and and you know a bit. I mean, I'm not knocking it, but by the time you get to like the Friday the Thirteenth and the Evil Deads, it, it's like you've created a genre where you're smiling a little bit as well as being terrified. <laughs> Whereas Alien is just legit. And what and and the re- I'm waffling, but the, I'm getting there. The reason is like what Jerry Goldsmith did on the score was also incredible and funny enough it's a controversial score because he wrote an original score and they had you know they had a bit of a, a disagreement about it and there was like a second iteration which i'm sure mr goldsmith was extremely irked to have to <laughs> write and i've actually got you know the cd where you get both versions but there are some moments where bang for buck what the music does in such a short amount of time there's one moment in in alien where I think it's one of those really slow shots of the Nostromo drifting through the sort of infinite expanse of space. And there's a cue that literally just has two flutes, which I, if I had a flute sample, I could play it to you. And it's just this simple phrase that is like the loneliest, it, 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 it evokes the in, infinite lonely nature of space. And, and it's literally a piece of score that's just like, it's two flutes. And for me, it's probably the most evocative bit of, film scoring in the history of mankind when you if if you if you're getting an award for least instruments used to (laughs) biggest evocative impact on the emotional experience what jerry goldsmith did on you know the whole score's not like that but this particular phrase i'm on about is just total genius so i don't know there's something about and I really liked what Fincher was trying to do on the third one, but it was, you know, wasn't he like 29 years old? And, you know, it was a really troubled production and there was a lot of right. interference and disagreement. But you can see somewhere in that third Alien movie, you can see enough of David Fincher's genius to see what it might have been like if he'd been 42 years old and no one messed with him and they just <laughs> gave him the money and left him alone. <laughs> it, it, there's something about those, like, they're not apocalyptic. I don't know what the word is. They're sort of, and they're not quite dystopian in that, you know, society gone, gone, you know, like I am legend or right. the fifth wave. It's not one of those like human society post-apocalypse. It, it's those movies that somehow capture the remoteness of some environment that's very alien to our own. And not they're, they're really specific because really Scott nailed again with like the Martian, but that's a different thing. That's a bit more practical and realistic. That's I can't quite put my finger on what 
these movies like, have, like, like Alien and you know James Cameron got like he definitely he just did more of an action version but he definitely sure. recaptured some of that um that sort of almost mythic mystery of what's in the depths of space it's just that having had you know like the horror tension version he stepped it up into a sort of epic um you know action version but I don't know what the, the modern equivalent, I mean, those mo- what, what the equivalent of, of that is right now, I don't know, but it, there's, something, there's something about the way Ridley Scott handled it that in that first Alien movie that just seems to combine everything from technological realism to some sort of epic, weird, like archetypal, something mythic, you know, it feels, mm-hmm. it doesn't, right. it feels like so, so many things are happening at once. It's just a piece of genius. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, it's a bit of an obvious thing to say, but that, that and also the score was allowed to have an elegant mythic beauty to it as well. You know, it's not, it's not techie. If you listen to that, there's a lot of horror-ish um, yeah. string effects and whatnot, but there's this whole layer of sort of operatic aesthetic beauty that um, Goldsmith was, you know, that, and, you know, that's kind of why I like Sylvester's Predator, because if you take, uh, Alan did a lot of really sophisticated harmony and really cool orchestration in Predator. And if you look at it, it's not, I'm not knocking the movie because I love it. It's John McTiernan, right? Who did Hunt, Hunt for Red October. He totally knows how to do a thriller and keep all the tension. Um, but when you watch a movie like that, which is pretty, you know, there's a bit of 80s muscle genre in there. And let's be honest, the dialogue's not Shakespearean. You know, Arnie's busy skewering someone to a wall going, stick around. <laughs> so it's not, necess- as a composer, it's not necessarily, like, oh, you know, we can do something really elevated. So the fact that Alan picked this really unusual scale that I've always been influenced by and did something really other. The lead. One of the reasons you don't, if you took the score out of that first Predator movie, half of that feeling of being watched and that there's something not of this earth is coming from Alan because he's using all these harmonies that are not grounded diatonic harmonies. So you're constantly feeling like it stops feeling like a shoot in Costa Rica. Like, oh, look, there's a jungle. It starts feeling like a jungle that has something that we don't understand in it. And I promise right. you, Alan's like 95% taking care of that because of what he's doing in the score. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so I want to be, I want to be just quickly mindful of time. I don't right. know if, um, what, oh, yeah. what your calendar yeah, no i better spend about four minutes okay uh norm bridget do you do you guys have uh final questions or it yes. turns into a sort of sylvester uh, adulation so, <laughs> curious this just came up into my head so as a marvel fan as you are and then but obviously you know your musical background you are constantly listening to what you're watching what did you think of the wandavision themes that were different each episode did you, oh, you know what? I, I tell yeah. you, like, that's the only thing because I was so busy by then. That is the only oh. thing in the entire MCU that that I have not watched properly. I've caught like tiny bits of it. I can geek yeah. out on everything except that. So I, I will not. I must hold my comment for fear of saying something ignorant and insufficiently informed. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep that in mind if if we ever get yeah, you yeah. back, which would be lovely. I hear nothing yes. but good reports, but yeah, just that's the only thing I have not. I've probably seen. Um, phase one and two about three three times each <laughs> that is literally the one thing i haven't seen top to tail so i'll leave oh that. wait sorry i have such a random question so i i'm an iron man fan um yeah. and you mentioned Same here <laughs> yes so we've got a bit, a bit of an even split here but um wondering since you mentioned the earlier mcu movies phase one and two 
Do you have a favorite version of Iron Man's theme? Because I do, and I'm wondering if you do. <laughs> well, that's a tricky one. Funnily enough, and this is partly due to my obsession with harmony, I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid that question because I know <laughs> many of the people who wrote it and just give a big Fair compliment. The best way I'm gonna do it is I'm gonna slightly avoid the question, just give a big compliment to John Debney in a slightly different way, which is to say that the the opening, uh, one of my favorite cues is the opening of Iron Man 2, which is which is actually not so much Iron Man, it's more the Russian, uh, you know, he went he went all out on the kind of Shostakovich, uh, uh, <laughs> Simonovsky kind of Russian flavor for that whole, that whole one and one that whole opening, before we've, you know, before we've met Mickey Rourke and know exactly what's going on with that. He really lays down that pipe in a way that if you're a composer, like a composer's composer move you know it's not often you get to to like really double down on a whole russian shtick like you really mean it without someone going wait a minute isn't this like a bit much it's like no 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 no. it's exactly what we should be doing um so let let me leave the compliment there without without uh trading off uh competitive uh iron Man, you know different composers we don't, we don't want any hurt thing. feelings no. i guess i guess my rap question would be uh we, we see the return of Steve's uh, little notebook of things to catch, and, and Bucky has now modified it into a uh, list of amends. But if you were to be run into Steve Rogers and he were to say, what thing from culture uh, since I've been gone should I watch movies or, or film scores or music in general? What would, you, what would be your go-to to tell him like, hey, this is something I think you would you would like or this is something that should be seen you need yeah yeah wow that's that's almost impossible and you know the first thing that comes into my head the first thing that comes into my head is so obscure and pretentious but sadly it is the first thing that pops into my head so i'm gonna to have to go with it you know how uh one of cap's problems is when he comes out of the ice he doesn't recognize the world that he grew up in in which things had a certain moral certainty to it, which was that, you know, America was a shining uh, democracy and these hideous, villainous fascists, you didn't, you know, that there was no ambiguity, ambiguity about it. And that's why he finds 2012 so difficult because he doesn't, you know, between Fury and Pierce and their preemptive plans to like take people out before they, you know, he can't figure out, you know, who the good guys and who aren't kind of thing. If, if he came out of the ice, I'd go, and because he's a very earnest kind of a guy, right? Who says, so what the hell's been going on? I would go, listen, my friend, it's going to be a long, it's going to be a long night and I'm going to have to give you a lot of DVDs, but you need to watch the entire collected documentary work of a guy called Adam Curtis, who is a complete genius, who does these crazy documentaries that not enough people know about, which if you imagine, you know, the era you live in, and then imagine a good documentary would sort of hover over the top of it, maybe from a height of 100 feet to give you, you know, some sense. (laughs) Adam Curtis documentaries analyze 20th century uh, uh, trends and what what human activity, whether it's social, political, from a height of like thirty eight thousand feet. The guy is an absolute genius. And I go sit down. You're not going to like it because there's an awful lot of quite depressing <laughs> stuff for you to catch up on. On on the uh, 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 well, not all, not all of it, but 
I reckon he'd come back to me in the morning and go, wow, okay, so I watched all that Adam Curtis stuff and I basically don't trust anyone or anything. And I put up, but I'm much I'm ready more to, fam- have to be scored yeah. by the Winter Soldier uh, theme. I'm now much more familiar with everything from the power of advertising to the manipulation of the internet to like big data to this. Adam Curtis has covered like everything there is from from the uh, fr- from the influence of Sigmund Freud through to the power of advertising through to game theory, the Cold War, you name it. In fact, he just did a wow. series coming out on the BBC. Now, I promise you, if you watch Adam Curtis for too long, what happens is you come away from your computer and you just sort of look out the window and, and you need about half an hour to settle back into normal. <laughs> that's not, that's the most practical answer I've ever heard no, to that it, question. But, that's, no, no, that's what's genius. good about it. But what it isn't is crazy conspiracy. You know, the world's run by lizards. The guy's a profound intellectual and, and, and I cannot recommend it enough. It's just very obscure because I guess it's seen as somewhat, you know, intellectual, which I always think is a ridiculous sure. word as if, you know, people are, you know, the movies to dumb things down. I mean, I'm always amazed by the movies. If, if, if you don't dumb stuff down, what generally happens is, is one ends up surprised at, uh, at how receptive and how like, basically people are not stupid you know the, yeah. the sort of advertising assumption that people are and you got to give them like little bite-sized chunk of idiot proof meaninglessness is is a very depressing view of the world I, I i prefer to think you can be pleasantly surprised when you aim things a bit you know high sometimes and find that a lot of people in fact the majority is still with you so anyway it's a hugely long-winded <laughs> answer but anyone, <laughs> anyone who hasn't seen any adam curtis you just just type it in and youtube youtube uh, and start watching and that would include that steve rogers yeah. yeah to, to our listeners, that. if you ever get frozen in the ice for a few decades, that's yeah. the documentaries you got to go. But you could watch. arguably say that's what's happening to us all right now. So get cracking. Well, but- exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining yes, us, Henry. This you. was such a fun conversation. This was such a great time. Um, uh, hang on. I, I got to say the podcast line. Thank you for stepping no into the verse. Um, <laughs> That was it really was a, cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's got to be said. So, you know, you did it very succinctly and I, I was convinced. <laughs> there you. we go. Thank you. We'd love to have you back sometime, uh, but we know you're a busy guy and uh, we look forward to seeing more of your work as, as more of the show, uh, as more Falcon and the Winter Soldier comes out. Brilliant. All right. Well, I hope we speak again. Thanks for having me on. No, thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks for joining Bye. us. Right, Take yeah. care. Bye. So long. So that wraps up our conversation with composer and film scorer Henry Jackman. We were so happy to speak with him, and we hope that you enjoyed the conversation just as much as we did. And a huge thanks to Henry again. I know we thanked him on the pod, but huge thanks to him for stepping into the verse with us. And a very special thank you as well to Andrew Krop and Kyrie Hood of White Bear PR for arranging this opportunity. Thank you so much. And also huge thanks to awardsradar.com, your premier source for awards and entertainment news. In the meantime, I think I hear our outro music, which means it's time to end the show. Stay tuned next week for another episode of The Verse. The Verse is presented by ScreenRadar.com and produced by Stephen Kuzakowski.